Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we are here from the we're from the very humid studio. It's warm in here. We, Chris always complained about lack of heat, so it's only, I mean, fitting that we're just sweating now. We're sweating in here, and there's water pouring all over the floor <laughs> from the radiator, so that's, that's just You jinxed great. it, I'm pretty sure. And little kids playing next door at a high decibel volume, so I hope you don't I uh, hope you don't hear that. I've also got, you might hear every once in a while, like a, I don't know if you could hear that or not, but that is my Christmas ornaments. Your festive mic stand. My festive mic stand, my Christmas ornaments that are on here, jingling and jangling, <laughs> and I've got tinsel on here now, which is... Yeah, really good for sound quality, really good for sound quality. <laughs> I actually unplugged it, just in case there was, like, mic interference in the... In the lights. In the lights, but Well, I you think do have another line of lights there. Yeah, but those are LEDs. Maybe that's not as much of a... Maybe that's more I of a I think problem. that's worse, actually. Yeah. Well, so far, so good. Nothing's wrapped around in these. I, maybe it's a shielded cord. And, sure. and we're all set. Anyway, today we got a great show. We've got John Oates from uh, from, from the, Hall and Oates from Hall and Oates, which is the top selling pop duo of all time. They've sold forty million records, and uh, John's a big car guy. And I didn't know this. Um, right. I don't want to. I don't want to tease anything. I just want you guys to know that it's a great story. He's got some cool stories for us of some racing he did back in the day, and and uh, and a car that he owns now that he. Uh, Rod Emery built, so we're going to yeah. talk about that a little bit, and a bunch of other stuff. So we're I'm really looking forward to having him on the podcast as well. Um, hey, we'll probably do some voicemails as well. Yep. We've got a voicemail to do, which is really long. I'm not sure how we're going to attack that. Um, we'll probably maybe we'll break it up a yep, little bit. We'll clip it up, and uh, also some news at the end. So what's new with you? What's what's going on with you? I've been working out in the garage quite a bit, getting the garage itself set to go. So it's all painted. I got a new furnace in it. And I saw that I you got, have a you have a TV. I in have your a, garage. a flat screen up there. Yeah. I have what I oh did I tell you about the death ray? The death ray? Yes, <laughs> I didn't tell you about the death ray. So I bought. Did I? The exceedingly bright LED oh, bulb. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't know it was the death ray. That's more of like a death uh glow because a ray is like a beam of light sure so it's yeah, not this death does ray. diffuse so i i've always had it's almost like radiation watt incandescent bulbs which are like good really god big man. bright bulbs and i've always still used them because i couldn't find an led bulb that would put out as much light actually so i finally found one online that I bought and it puts out 10,000 over 10,000 lumens. I think it's 12,000 lumens. It looks pretty bright from what you showed me. Yep. And so I bought another one. So now I have two of these things and I retrofitted my fluorescent um, tubes or uh, fixtures, I guess for led tubes. Lighting is key in the garage. So it's blinding. So do you need to put like a diffuser on it or something? Probably should. Cause out of the corner of your eye, it's bright constantly. It's very bright. Yeah. So that's good. So I went to look at a went to look at a 930 over at 311RS, right? Um, which is a local shop here that does a bunch of Porsche work, does track prep. They're building a, a Cup Sport 911, yep. which is like kind of their vision of what a the best 993 could could be, which is pretty cool, track ready, but can still be driven on the street. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I went. I'm like, you know, I want to do the 930 project with my motor. Right. You which wanna... is, I want to put all the turbo stuff on my engine. Right. And uh, I don't want to get into the details in this and rehash that all over again. And to be fair, before I start, I, w- I will say that his engine uh-huh. is n- much newer than the setup that I'm doing. Okay. So it is more What year is that 930 that he has? probably like an 87, okay. 88. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I'm not sure what his is. So right. it's the later 930. My stuff is all from like 78, okay. 930 stuff. So it's 10 years Is that when it's the 3 liter instead of the 3.3, I think? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I know that the three, they might. I don't think it would matter if you knew the answer to that question. Yeah, I I don't know. So (laughs) anyway, so you went to go look at this 930. I I was like, oh, I'll go look at it, see what I'm missing. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) 
I'm, I, to be fair, like I said, his is an 88, right? Okay. So his is or 87. So it's a lot more complicated. Right. But for a second there, I was like, no. no. Turbochargers are complicated. Yeah, turns I'm, out. Yeah. Well, yes, but it's even more complicated when everything that a computer would, di- would do is mechanical <laughs> and outside. Like just vacuum lines. Just vacuum everywhere. lines and fuel lines and all kinds of different gizmos right. and doodads that are all mechanical to compensate for the boost. Right. Oh, I forgot about something. Hold on. Okay. He's reaching into his bag to get something. Oh. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, so okay. You know what? I'll put on my Christmas hat, too, since we're being festive. Yeah, we'll get a picture up for everybody so everybody can see what okay. we look like. I can't see the show notes anymore yeah. wearing these goggles. but uh, this, is, this is interesting. <laughs> I'm going to take a photo of you. So I, uh, I looked at the ninth area. I grabbed a flashlight, and I was, like, peeking around in there, and I was just like, no. Nope, I can't. I can't do it. I'm all done. I cannot possibly go through the work to get all this. I can't see it, so I have to take these off. Okay. So you're you're so the turbo project is is done. No. No. I'm I've decided I'm gonna do it anyway. Um and one of the reasons why I decided I'm gonna do it anyway is because A, I wanted to do it anyway be, right. in the beginning, but B, I actually pulled my transmission apart and saw what was actually wrong with my transmission. I did see that. And it turns out that the pinion gear that's on the end of the shaft that basically holds the gear stack. Right. So that's the gear that goes through and basically runs the differential. Right. It turns the big ring. Yeah, it turns the the ring. It's the pinion of the ring and pinion gear. Right. uh, Gear sets. And it is destroyed. It looks like it delaminated, which I guess is (laughs) that's fairly common on that older style transmission. When you throw too much power at it, it does that. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you look at the newer ones, the the, the pinion gear is much thicker, okay. and it's eight teeth instead of seven. So mine's a seven thirty one. I think the other ones are an eight thirty five. And what that means is there's eight teeth right. on the pinion gear and thirty five teeth mm-hmm. on the the ring, which basically gives you your gear ratio. Then right. That's counterintuitive, though, to think that more teeth would be able to handle more power. I think because it's... Because then they're smaller teeth, you know? Yeah, but you have to keep in mind that the, the shaft is thicker, too. It's thicker. It's a little bit bigger. Okay. And I would say that it would probably help because it would uh, spread the power out between more teeth. Sure. So as I guess. You, you've got, like, instead of having one tooth, you've got maybe a tooth and a half that's taking the brunt of it. I have no idea. But anyway, the new ones don't do this. New as in right. 70s. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly what to do. I know that... The transmission is, as a core is uh-huh. almost worthless oh, because really? the pinion gear is $2,000. And you can get a used one, but why? I mean, right. if it's just going to do the same thing over again. So you have to get a new one. It's like $2,000. So then I'm $4,000 into rebuilding the transmission. Yeah. Basically. Right. I, it's going to be about $4,000. And I'm like, you know what? I already got the transmission on the car. Right. I've already got some turbo parts. For me to build, pay another $4,000 to have the transmission rebuilt and then try and sell the stuff I already have and then buy carbs and buy cams. It's going to be more expensive than just doing the turbo stuff with the transmission that I already have. You could just enjoy the car as it is. I don't like the transmission that's in the car with the engine that's in the car. And I don't think... Can you so, just change ratios? Uh, n- no, because I need to do that. I would need the ring and pinion from the transmission I already have, <laughs> which doesn't okay. really... Apparently, sure. there's like you can get one out of like a 912 e or something like that oh yeah the 76 yeah something like i don't know you can do some weird shit but i just don't want to do any of that so i'm basically the value in my transmission is the fact that it's a magnesium case transmission Mm -hmm. and my magnesium is not corroded at all okay it's very very clean so i think i should be able to get like 1500 bucks for it as is with for a core without right with needing the the painting gear you can get them used for like 600 bucks so maybe somebody will 
you know, go ahead and rebuild the thing and have a nice man case transmission for their 72 or their hot rod or whatever. Right. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. I'm not, I went through this huge, like emotional swing of like not being able to sleep and I don't know what I'm going to do. Should I do this or that? Which sounds ridiculous and it is ridiculous. Yeah. But I just, you know, I just had to figure something out, you know, so that we're going to go through with the turbo stuff, but I'm going to do it slowly. I'm not going to. So this won't be set for next year. I don't, I man, unless I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Unless we get some huge sponsor on the podcast, okay. I don't think so. Gotcha. It's just too much money. It's it's. Have you it's, bought the actual turbocharger itself yet? I tried. I'm still oh, waiting. You tried? <laughs> well, I saw one. The guy's like, "Yeah, it's been rebuilt." Blah blah blah. Right. I think you mentioned that last week. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the paperwork. Okay. And I'm not going to buy a transmission. That guy's like, "Yeah, it's rebuilt." I'm like, "Okay." Does you that mean, mean turbocharger? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. What did I say? Transmission. You're yeah, still thinking transmission. Yeah, here. Jesus. Well, a lot of guys will just press their own little cartridges in and like rebuild their own transmissions. And that turbos. Me, yes, God. <laughs> Tur- <laughs> turbocharger. And it's just, uh, I don't know. I've only had like one fun turbocharged car in my life, and that was that old Chiraco. Right, with so the 1.8T. Yeah, with the 1.8T. So this is all kind of new to me. So um, I just want to make sure that it has paperwork and it's been rebuilt because he said it was rebuilt by this guy. And I'm like, I need, you know, I, I'm not in a hurry. So right. I might as well just make sure the thing actually was, you know, and I just need to know. Yeah, that so makes sense. That's kind of where where I'm at with with the car right now. Plus, I got to tow it down to the body shop to have that stuff fixed. I was and wondering how where that's. At. I I actually called up AAA to have it towed, and my AAA expired. So, so now I'm going to wait a little bit and <laughs> sign up for AAA again, and then wait a little bit and then do it because it's yeah. probably like a hundred bucks to have it towed down there. Yeah, and the AAA is 150. For three toes, two hundred miles. I love that you use AAA as your transport service. It well, it needs it to works. go. Yeah, you can do it on your phone. You can just go boop, 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 and just they like, come pick up the car and they just take it. You don't even have to talk to anybody. <laughs> so I actually know a guy who just had a car brought up from like Missouri or something, and he would have it towed the two hundred miles. No, he had it towed the two hundred miles to a place, and then he would call him up and be like, "Yeah, sorry." Uh, that shop can't fix it. So then you would have it towed another 100 miles north. Yep, sorry, that can't fix it. And I guess it, finally they caught him in Chicago where, like, they blacklisted the car <laughs> and said, you can't you can't do it anymore. Um, but uh, it's it's a great idea. It's, it's you know, circumventing the rules. But, yeah. Um, yeah, whatever. So we'll see how it goes. That's kind of where the car is at. Now it's not saying there. oh, my kid took a toy and, like, Uh-oh. scratched the hood. Not too thrilled about that. Well, you're taking it back to the body shop anyways. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, so uh, before we get uh, on the horn with John, I want to yes. remind everybody to go to patreon.com slash overcrest. Um, Ten bucks gets you a signed print by me and a T-shirt, and it really helps out the show. Five dollars get, just gets you a T-shirt, and that's monthly and really helps out the show. Show your support. Help us out. Help us pay the rent. Keep the lights on. My Christmas lights. And uh, yeah, stop by and <laughs> the important lights the, that the need important to be lights. kept on. Yeah. Yep. And you also get uh, to listen to the podcast as soon as we record it. Yep. So day. we record on Wednesdays. It comes out on Monday. So you get the podcast right away. And uh, yeah, so we'll be right back with John and we'll uh, we'll get going with him. Mr. John Oates, how's it going? Hey, is this Chris? This is. How are you, man? All right, man. I'm glad we connected. Good, good. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. All right, very cool. It looks like uh, so. I've been talking to Ray a little bit. It looks like you guys had a pretty kick-ass weekend down there in Florida. Oh man, we that amazing. I, I can't even describe it. Uh, I'll be happy to describe it if you want me to. Yeah, I was gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> you're gonna have to try. <laughs> all right, I'll try. No, no problem at all. No problem. What did you got? What did you end up doing down there? 
Well, you know, Kevin Jeanette um, and Gunner Racing put together basically a private uh, day at the track at West Palm for, you know, for his clients, for some of the folks that, you know, that he uh, runs, uh, he runs some of their race cars and friends and uh, some old, some race drivers. And, uh, you know, so it was a really great collection of uh, and group of uh, cool people, a lot of whom I, I knew over the years and uh, some incredible cars. I mean, a couple of GT uh, three cup cars, um, a couple 962s, an RS, a Spider. Um, I mean, some just absolutely off, you know, off the charts uh, race cars. And, what did you and I got driving? to drive. I got to drive a 962. I mean, wow. <laughs> so let's let's put it this way: I got to drive around uh, in a 962. <laughs> uh, to, to say that I drove it, it was just kind of, um, you know, I, I was so intimidated. I mean, anytime you're in a two million dollar race car with that kind of power, never having driven anything like that, it's a bit intimidating. Um, so I cruised around a couple laps and got the, just got the feel for being in the cockpit of that now, iconic. Now that must have been race. that must have been really special with considering that you know with Richard Lloyd being your mentor and everything, he used to drive a nine five six, right? Yeah, and yeah. So and you know, I always remember Richard saying to me because in back in the day when he got that car, I I, used, I said to him, man, what's it like? You know, what's it like to drive? He goes, he goes, man, you wouldn't believe it. He goes, it's so easy to drive up to about eight tenths. Huh. He goes between eight and ten tenths. He goes, it takes a whole different human being. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, he was right. I mean, you sit in the car and you, you turn it on with a key, I, with a Porsche key. I mean, it's crazy. And then, uh, you know, it starts right up and, you know, clutch, clutch is pretty, you know, it's got like a stiff racing clutch, a little chattery, getting it moving. And once it's cruising along, it's just driving. I mean, it, it turns in and, and, hand, and the, the steering is so precise. Uh, and it's like a go-kart. And then, uh, you know, a few times when I got the turbo to kick in on the straightaway, it was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I made sure I shut it down pretty quick and got on the brakes early and, you know, took my time with it. But um, but I would love to have another go in it. I might be able to, you know, drive it a little harder next time. But uh, it was just an amazing experience. I, I really enjoyed driving the cup cars. Um, they were, you know, the 996s. Um, uh, they were amazing. Uh, and... Uh, I drove two two different ones, and um, they're great. You know, five speed manuals. You know, wasn't the wasn't the paddle shifters, sure. and so it's kind of old school, which is kind of where I'm coming from. And uh, I loved it. Um, I, I got those going okay. You know, I, I got going pretty good. In well, th those are worth a little bit less money, and you can you can still kind of replace yeah. those. In nine sixty two, you're not there's there's no replacing one of those. So before we get into some of the other stuff, I want to talk to I when I when I interview people, I always like knowing where they come from, especially with cars, because it always seems to start a little bit differently. Uh, for everybody. So do you remember kind of where cars started for you and when you kind of started falling in love with them? Yeah, I do. I remember very, very well. Um, I was living in Pennsylvania. I lived in a small town called North Wales, Pennsylvania, which at the time in the 50s was a, was the country, you know, and it was outside of Philadelphia. Now it's the suburbs. But uh, I had a very good friend whose father was ran the uh, food concession at the old Hatfield Speedway. It was a, a dirt track um, at I think it was a quarter mile dirt track and uh on saturday nights under the lights i used to go watch the midgets and the jalopies and destruction derbies and things like that <laughs> we used to sneak under the fence and uh i saw mario andretti running the jalopies back in the 50s wow you know things like that so that's kind of where i, I got the bug that way and then i one it, it was this really you know unusual circumstance i 
I, I found a box, a cardboard box of old rodent track magazines that someone had put out on the street uh, to be picked up for trash. And um, I, I just opened the box and looked inside, and the, the magazines went back to the early 1950s, some of the earliest first editions of volumes of rodent track. And um, I took the box home and started looking through these magazines, and in it were stories about the European races, you know, uh, with these names, Fangio and Moss and, you know, and the Targa Florio and, and you know, and all these, you know, these incredibly exotic uh, lo- locations and names and things that just really piqued my interest, and I started really digging into this stuff. And, you know, I got, I got very, I was fascinated with this whole other world outside of my little town where I lived. And um, that's really what got me going. And I became kind of a, a student of, of the early days of uh, Grand Prix racing after, after, especially after World War II, you know, prior, past, uh, post-World War II. You know, the days of the, uh, you know, the, the last of the front engine cars and the transition to the rear engine cars sure. and, and all that kind of stuff. So that was, a, that's really what did it for me. As soon as I got... You know, and then I, I used to, you know, I, I loved to drive. I just had this thing about driving. And my, I would always try to talk my parents into some car that they didn't want. Um, <laughs> and uh, managed to talk them into, believe it or not, a Renault, Renault Dauphine. Oh, a little man. tiny Renault Dauphine, which I drove at first. And then I talked them into a, Cor- a Corvair. I think I was um, actually conceived I, in a Ro- Renault Gordini. I think what I was conceived of. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. saying something. <laughs> there you go. Do, do, do you speak French? Um, I, I, I do not. I there do you not. Go. <laughs> you need the pencil-thin mustache, too. I could work on that. I could work on that. <laughs> so, yeah, then we got a Corvair, and eventually I talked him into buying a GTO in 1968, which, uh, which Daryl and I then subsequently bought from my parents and used to go on tour when we first started. Oh, no kidding. So, so instead of being in the bus, you drove around the GTO? We actually toured the toured the country in a yellow uh, uh, GTO with a black vinyl top, and we put the whole band in it. Um, <laughs> and they always had a, you know, I drove. Daryl sat in the front passenger seat. The uh, the bass player and drummer and um, keyboard player had a, a draw straws for who sat on the hump in the back. Yeah, and uh, we drove all over the country in that thing. That's fantastic. So where's that car now? I wish I knew. <laughs> oh man, that'd be a good that'd be a good one to find. So in the late '60s, yeah. early '70s, you know, Hall and Oates started really taking off, and you were still selling a lot of records. Once you started making some money, what was the first car that you bought? What was? Did you know that that's the one you wanted the whole time? How did that happen? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I definitely knew. Um, let's see, the first car I bought for myself. Well, I bought a about a Volvo P P five forty four, the coupe, the coupe yep. that looked like a forty Ford. Bought one of those, and then Daryl and I actually shared that car for a little while. And then the first car I bought was a yellow, um, primrose yellow MGP Roadster. Nice. And right right after that, I bought a 73 Alfa Romeo Spider, black with tan interior. So at some point, um, you had a huge car collection, right? I mean, you had a bunch of cars. Well, no, I, I wouldn't say I had a huge one, but I had a fairly good, nice one. Um, that, that wasn't until the 80s. Through... Through the seventies, I you know began to buy various cars. The, my first big serious purchase was a seventy seven nine thirty turbo. Oh, okay. Um, which I bought out in L.A. when I was living out there for a little while, recording out in L.A. Uh, bought that, and uh, then 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 it started going from there. Uh, in the eighties, I had a fifty six uh, Porsche Speedster. I had an eighty four uh, Carrera nine eleven Carrera. 
I had an Austin Healy 3000. Um, I had an E-Type, a red E-Type. Uh, I had a 55 Chevy convertible. Uh, oh, all, all sorts of stuff. I was going to say, all stuff. over the map. So coming from a guy with a three-car yeah, yeah. garage, that, that is a huge collection. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So what happened to all these cars? Where, where Do you know what did you end up selling? Well, you know, I mean... I don't want to. I don't want to sound flip, but it's it's all in the book. If you really want some details on this, I, I wrote a book called Change Seasons two years ago, and uh, the details are all the gory details are all in it. But to make a long story short, I got divorced uh, in '89. Had uh, a lot of uh, uh, pro- professional uh, upheaval with my, our manager moving, you know, leaving and kind of being left adrift professionally. So between the divorce and kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my musical life. I sold everything and uh, moved to Colorado and lived in the mountains. That sounds absolutely wow. amazing. Was there internet service there at some point? Because that's, you know, I, uh, I no, think about that there, sometimes. No, this was, this was 89. There was no internet, period. Yeah, um, they hadn't invented it yet. Um, so, uh, well, they did invent it. You know, DARPA invented it back in the 70s, but that's a whole other wormhole. We don't need to go yeah, down. Yeah, for, for sure. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, one of my one, a good friend that I met in in uh, Aspen, Colorado, when I first moved there, was Danny Sullivan. And the first thing he said to me, he said, "You don't want a nice car out here." He said, "You want a truck." And he was right. I drove a pickup truck for about 20 years uh, before I got back into cars again, because uh, I lived on a dirt road, and um, you know, there was no really reason to to have anything. Did you uh, miss it? You know, I missed it a little bit. I actually in. Um, I bought an A3 uh, back in, I guess it was 96, and I modified it. Um, and that was my first kind of dipping the toe back in the water of the, being a car, a car guy again. Uh, and that was fun, and I went on from there. So so how did the, the Big Bamboo Fiero Tour come about? Because when, when I look you up and I look up, you up with cars, when I go on the Internet, I see pictures of, of you guys laying on a red Fiero, and I just yeah. it, it's, super, <laughs> it's a super cool photo. How did that all come about? Well, you know, those were the days when uh, corporations, uh, you know, were were very high on um, doing tour sponsorships because they felt, uh, you know, there was was a good match. And Pontiac was introducing the Fiero. It had a sporty kind of young image, and we were hot, uh, so they – we we did a deal with them. Actually, the deal was was uh, put together uh, by the very well-known automotive broadcaster, Mike Joy. And uh, Mike and I became very good friends, and Mike actually arranged for me to uh, test uh, Brett Bodine's uh, NASCAR modified car and actually get a ride in in a Joe Huffaker Pontiac Fiero race car in in the IMSA series as well. So um, I started doing, you know, professionally racing in the late 70s and early 80s. So, so did the, the Mike Fiero Joy thing like big, kind of get you into the GTU class? I mean, when you drove, when you did the Fiero stuff with Pontiac and you did the tour, is that kind of how you ended up driving an, an IMSA Fiero? Yeah, that's exactly how. Um, you know, Bob Earl was the was the chief driver of that car, doing pretty well. And Joe Huff, it was a Joe Huffaker prepared car, and um, they they let me drive it. And unfortunately, I had a pretty bad accident at uh, Road America. And um, what happened? That was really the end of my racing career. Well, uh, I think we had a transmission lockup um, oh, no. in, in, in the kink. I don't know if you know the, the, the track very well. I do. But after you come out of the carousel, there's a back straight with, that has a kink in it that's a pretty fast, basically a flat-out flat, flat, flat out turn. Um, I heard a popping sound. Next thing I knew, I woke up in the ambulance heading to the hospital. So I was uh, out for a bit, whacked my head pretty good. Um, 
And that's when I decided maybe I better not race professionally because I really was, you know, I did did a number of races prior to that in uh, IMSA GTU and a Porsche 924 GTR as well with Richard Lloyd and with a guy named George Drolson. And I was racing in the Sports 2000 uh, series, professional series. So I was, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of racing in those days. So how did you end up hooking up with, with Rod Emery? For all these years, driving the truck and everything else, all of a sudden, <laughs> here you are, and I see pictures of you with this super kick-ass Rod Emery-built 356. And I'm just, how did that relationship come to be? Well, I, um, I you know, as, as all, all of us car, car nerds do, we, we you know, we, we cruise the Internet looking for cool stuff. And uh, came across Rod's, uh, you know, look, always looking at Porsche things, you know, being a Porsche fan. Uh, came across Rod's uh, home page and his Instagram stuff, and um, I, I was very impressed with what I saw. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, it, it seemed to fit the bill for me. I'm, being an old-school kind of driver, I, I like the feel of an old car. I like small, lightweight sports cars. But yet I knew that, you know, I wouldn't be happy with it, with a, with a, you know, with a real antique and, you know, something that you couldn't really drive on the road and or on the highway at, at highway speeds, et cetera, et cetera. So Rod's, you know, Rod's approach to what he does with the 356 seems to fit the bill. So I basically, I was out in L.A. doing some shows, and um, I called him up, and he picked up the phone, and I said, hey, man, introduce myself. I said, I'm in L.A. I'd love to come and see what you do. He said, come on. And uh, I went out to his shop, and I, that was it. I was done at that point. I was hooked. Did you drive I one of them? Did he, he did. take you for a drive and you were just sold? Oh, yeah. I got a chance to drive one of the cars. Um, we just cruised around, you know, right there in North Hollywood. And, uh, but it only took a little drive to convince me that he was on the right, you know, he knew what he was doing. And what I loved about him was not only the workmanship and the art, the artistry of what he does, but he's a Porsche historian. You know, he, he loves the brand. He, he knows it intimately. Uh, he's a fanatic, fanatical uh, Porsche purist, and I just love that about him. I love the sense of history, and I love the fact that he was doing everything in a really old school manner. And so it, it just uh, it was like a, I said, you know what? I'm going to take a leap of faith, and I said, let's build a car. And um, he said, okay. He said, I got to warn you, it's going to take a year and a half to two years. And I said, okay. I said, he said, you sure you can be patient? I said, I'm going <laughs> to do my best. <laughs> and uh, that was probably the hardest part, but, and he true to his word, it was exactly two years. So what, and when you look at the car, what was your influence on the car? What did you, what are some of the decisions that you made to make that car yours? Well, the first thing that happened was Rod picked my brain, which I think is what he does with all his prospective clients. He, uh, he wants to find out what you really expect and what you want and what you, what you're thinking about. And I had told him that I had a 56 speedster. And I told him that of all the cars that I owned and and got rid of, that was the only one I really regretted getting rid of. And so immediately, you know, he had that in his head. And I said, but, you know, I, I said, I don't want to try to recreate the past. I want to do something that, that gives me the same feeling but is, is, is forward-looking. And so um, he asked me, he said, do you want a coupe or a convertible? I said, well, I said, I think I want a convertible. And uh, he said, okay. And about a couple weeks later, he called me. He said, I think I found your car. And he found a barn. There was literally a, a true barn find in Texas. And uh, the the, um, the kicker was that it had a removable hardtop. It had the uh, mm. optional removable hardtop. And it was crushed. The whole front end of the car was crushed. Uh, it had hit a tree at some point and was just retired to a barn. And they had to pull it out with a tractor and a chain. 
And so uh, he showed me some pictures. He said, I think this is a good candidate for what you're looking for. And I said, okay, man, let's go. And I bought the car. He brought it up to California and began working on it. And as the process began to evolve, um, I started studying deeply into the 356 history, and I got into it big time. And uh, what I began to realize was I had an opportunity to do something very unique, to have something that was totally custom-made and bespoke for exactly what I wanted. Um, and I started to pick what I considered to be the best design elements of the 356 from the pre-A all the way through the C, you know, the SC, uh, before it became, you know, before it was retired for the 911. And I said, well, I like that bumper. I like this, uh, the hood. I like this, uh, this, you know, the, the nose of the A model. Uh, you know, it's just the, the details where I can't even begin to go into the amount of details that were involved. Sure. And Rod and I began to collaborate, you know, and I, of course, always, you know, deferred to him when it came to uh, things. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to lose the, the hard top and just have a convertible top. And he said, no, he said, man, he said, I, he said, I really want you to have the hard top. He said, I think I can do something special with it. And I asked him what he wanted to do. And he said he wanted to rake the windshield pillar back. He wanted to chop the top. And I was like, okay. I said, all right, man, you've got a vision for this. Let's do it. And so it was really a give and take kind of a collaboration between us. Um, you know, the car had the deluxe seats. I wanted speedster seats. Um, so we put speedster seats in it. You well, know, that's kind of uh, how the best cars wanna, come about is a, is a collaboration when you work together to get the outcome exactly. that you want versus just, you know, giving somebody a check and then getting a car later. It's much better <laughs> to have it work this way. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I, I went I went to his shop every month, uh, at least once a month for two years. And uh, I would pop in to see the, you know, see, see how the car was uh, developing and coming along and we changed things, you know, on the spot and I documented everything with photos, got photos from the, you know, from the time the car was pulled out of the barn in Texas. So, um, you know, I've got a whole history on this car now and it's, uh, it's very unique. It really is, uh, to me, I, you know, and I jokingly call it the 356's greatest hits because <laughs> it's got the elements that I think are the best things about the 356. So tell me about going to pick the car up. What was it when you went for the last, you've been there for once a month, for two years, you finally get to go pick up the car and it's done. What was that driving it like? Well, it didn't quite work like that. <laughs> um, the car was supposed to be ready for Pebble Beach uh, in August of this past summer. And it wasn't quite ready. And he, he said, look, John, he goes, I can bring it up there. He goes, but it's not quite ready. I said, all right. Um, I said, what, what, do you, what, what are you thinking? He said, uh, he goes, I'll have it ready for Rensport in, in the end of September. Uh, this was the end this past September. And I said, okay, man, let's do it. So uh, I was on tour, and as soon as I finished the last date on the tour, I flew out to uh, Monterey for Rensport, and there was the car. It was still was not 100% uh, finished. It had the soft top on it, not the hard top, and there were a few little cosmetic details that weren't quite uh, finished. But the car was there, and um, I drove it on the track. So the first time I actually drove the car was at Laguna Seca um, <laughs> on the track. <laughs> so was it? What, so, did you uh, enjoy that, or driving the track? I saw you were driving the track well, while I was it, there too. It, <laughs> you drove on a put, Oh well, the tractor is a whole other story. <laughs> um, but but it was. I don't know if you saw that. The, it was supposed to be a parade lap, um, but when I shifted from third to fourth at about eighty or ninety on the front on the straightaway, I realized that maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, <laughs> As it turned out, the following day, they, they took all the 356s and they uh, 
they had a car in front and a car in back and made everybody drive around at 40 miles an hour. So the parade <laughs> life, I think we, we ruined it for everybody. That's right. Um, That's but I knew from the moment I drove that car that it was something special. Uh, now the car is completely 100%, and it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, and um, I'm, I'm going to bring it down to Amelia Island in March uh, for the show down there and uh, just enjoy driving it. Well, I look forward to seeing it in person someday. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? What kind of uh, – what, what makes a guy write a book? <laughs> well, you know, I've had a, you know, I've had a long life. I think I've had an interesting life. I've done a lot of things, uh, you know, not only in music but, you know, in, 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 in life in general. I uh, had some crazy adventures, and I was doing a series of interviews with a guy who, who seemed to really kind of pick up on some of the stuff that I was doing outside of music, which is a lot of it's obviously pretty well documented. So um, he said, man, he said, your stories are great. You ought to write a book. And I said, well, I don't know. I've been, I always thought about it. But he said, look, he said, I'd like to help you. If you want to do it, I'd like to be your collaborator and help you write it. And he had a lot of experience. He's published a number of books. So I said, all right, let's let's do this. And uh, so I began the process. And uh, it was hard to sustain the the interest and the energy over you know a two year period that it took to uh, took to write the book. But it was it was definitely worth it. I'm glad I did it. Um, I think there's another book in me down the road. I don't know when, but um, I think that's something I'll probably get around to. Well, it sounds awesome. Where can people find it? What's it? What's the title? Um, it's it's called Change of Seasons. Uh, and it's available on Amazon. It's available on my website, johnoats.com. And, um, yeah, it's pretty much available. It's even available in the airport. So there, there you, you go. go. Yeah, I actually ordered a copy, but it didn't get here in time for me to take a look at it before I had you ah, on. So um, anyway, right. man, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'll see you and the car maybe at uh, Rensport next time around. Yeah, if not, I don't know if you're going. If you're going to Amelia Island, it'll definitely be there. I might. We'll see how it goes. There's a, I live in All Minnesota, right. so there's only so many places I can go. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of travel right. involved. So, well, take okay. care of yourself, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Okay, thank you very much for having me. That was awesome. It's uh, it's been really, I've been looking forward to that one quite a bit. It's it really just, cool to hear you know, some of his stories. You know, doing a lot, I do a lot of research on the people before I talk to them and everything like that. Right. The dude really has led a really interesting life, and uh, I I do have his book, and I'm gonna. I'm going to have a read. I hope everybody else goes and takes a look and, and uh, if you enjoy reading books, that'd be a, that'd be a good one. I think, yeah, um, you know, one thing I wanted to do and I didn't, like, I don't know him very well, so I don't want to make this joke, but every car I drove that was out of control, right. I would always call it a man eater. Okay. Well, and that thing's a real man eater. And you know, all in notes does the song man eater. Right. So I was going to ask him like, how about that 356? That thing's a real man eater, huh? I bet. And we would have heard click. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. But, but I, I really did call all the cars uh, man eaters. Like, right. oh man, that thing's a tr- Whoa, there she goes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. So anyway, we've got some news coming up. And uh, after that, we've got the voicemail. Let's uh, Let's do it. Okay, we got the news, and uh, what's what's our tagline for this? We we go, we go through the news so you don't have to. Yeah, I I literally spend every day, not every day, but every day, not all day, every day, but every day I spend, I go through and I read, right? Like whether it's Drive or Jalopnik or AutomotiveNews.com and Car and Driver and Motor Trend and Road and Track, I go, I read everything. So I spend a lot of time going through and picking out articles that I think are funny or interesting. These or, are cherry picked and curated. I usually you. have like fifteen of them. Right, that we have to narrow down. Yeah, we so, just kind of cull through them. Again. Yeah, cull through and and uh, and go through and see. So the uh, the big one I want to talk about today 
isn't the longest, but I think it's kind of, I love ones that are like, where I can be basically right. Those are my, <laughs> those are my favorite. So the stories you deleted were ones that contradict your viewpoint. No, no, this isn't CNN. Oh. <laughs> All right. So um, VW says that the next generation of combustion cars will be its last. Wow. And uh, this is something that I've been talking about happening. Everybody kind of knows it's been happening and yeah. it's going to happen. But this is the first time where I've, I've seen anybody be like, this is our last go. This is our last collection of... Uh, combustion vehicles that we're going to be making. I mean, I'm sure they're going to support the the other cars, gasoline cars, because there's going to be places where they are not able to plug in and drive. That you're still going to be able to be able to use them. Right. But this is the first time it's been like, yep, we're done. Here's this the plan. And that's I, I keep thinking back to what our resident engineer Matt told us about how you can't force this on people too quickly. Right. Otherwise, it won't be adopted. And why you know why we haven't just kept with hybrid technology for longer it's not as sexy as he said no right yeah that's but it's like now if you're gonna stop producing gasoline engines completely if that's what volkswagen is saying then they're totally lost the lost the hybrid thing i mean they were never on that that train anyways well yeah i mean they've got the gte that's a plug-in hybrid is it yeah but that's not available here Oh, it's only in Europe or whatever, so right. we don't we well, don't get that. Well, they car. they were betting big on diesel, and then that didn't work. Didn't really pan out. <laughs> um, okay, so Volkswagen AG expects the era of combustion car to fade away after it rolls out its next generation gasoline and diesel cars beginning in 2026. So does that mean that 2026 is the last no, generation, or that's the that's, end? No, that's the beginning. So that's when they're going to launch this next gen, okay. I think. So traditional automakers are under increasing pressure from regulators to c- reduce carbon dioxide emissions to combat climate change, prompting Volkswagen to pursue a radical shift to electric vehicles. Our, I think maybe more, it's more guilt that's <laughs> pushing them <laughs> in a radical shift. Our colleagues are working on the last platform for vehicles that aren't CO2 neutral. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. The world's largest automaker has started to introduce its first wave of electric cars, including next year's Porsche Taycan. The rollout across a stable of 12 automotive brands is forecast to comprise about 15 million vehicles as the company earmarks $50 billion over the next five years to spend on transformation to self-driving electric cars. So they're talking about the entire group, not just Volkswagen cars. They're talking about Porsche. They're talking Lamborghini. That is, yeah, Bentley is... Because I just read, I read another article that said Bentley thinks that electric cars aren't quite cool enough yet to be electric drivetrains aren't cool enough to be in a Bentley. Oh, really? <laughs> that's what they. That's what the Bentley guy said. But I'm, I'm thinking well, maybe they have until 2026, I guess, to to figure it out. Yeah. Um, production of VW brands ID Neo, hatch. The ID is like the the model line. ID. Okay. I don't know what I should look up and see what that stands for. Um, but they have like the Neo, the Buzz, <laughs> ID, the Neo, the Buzz, and the Cruise. I think are the th- three things. One of them is the bus. I don't right. remember yep, which one. I, that is. I remember reading um, about that. Production will start in twelve months. Oh, really? In Germany, followed by other models from the ID line assembled at two sites in China. As of twenty twenty, who wants to buy a German car made in China? Yeah, that, that seems sucks. VW plans to fully launch a part fully or partly electric vehicles across this lineup of more than 300 cars, vans, trucks, and motorbikes by 2030. Um, v- VW wow. will continue to modify its combustion engine technology after the new platform is introduced, introduced next decade. Don't they own Ducati? Yeah, I think they do. You're not going to have, ele- <laughs> like, bikes aren't there yet. They Didn't they mention motorcycles there? Yeah, it did say motorcycles. I, that's, I after can't. 2050, there will, may be some gasoline and diesel models in regions where there is insufficient charging infrastructure. Problems mm-hmm. with diesel, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, gradual exit of combustion engines marks a sea change for Volkswagen, which became the poster child of a car pollution scam after it admitted to cheating on emissions tests in a scandal involving 11 million vehicles. And the guy, the Jost, I, says, yes, we have clear responsibility here. We made mistakes. So this Oops. is... Can You think this can actually happen? I mean, obviously, it's going to happen. They're going yeah, to. Yeah, no, But do you think will. that people are going to accept this? Because this is like... Well, that's that's what I kind of was getting at about if you're trying to push this faster than the consumers is ready to adopt it, that's going to backfire. Right. You're going to get this pendulum effect where you're pushing so far for electric, it's going to swing back and say, wait a minute, no, I want to buy whatever the last gas car is. Yes, but I think what they're doing, and this is the same thing Porsche is doing, and I'm actually going to talk about this later in the news on a on a porsche related topic on this is they have so they have like a so they're making these cars in 12 months right so that sure. 12 months they're going to start making these cars and that's going to be 2019 2020 right is 2020 is when these cars come out and they'll be available to buy yeah. so then you have a six-year overlap right okay so these cars will also be sold along with the combustion cars right so you'll have the the, the electric cars for sale with the combustion cars on the show floor so you're going to have that six-year transition period where they're going to be marketing like crazy to get people not to buy those and mm-hmm. buy this other stuff instead so it's kind of like it's not qu- going to be quite as shocking as no, it seems you're right plus you have another you know who i feel sorry for who chad over at sci performance oh yeah what are these shops going to do well i think that you know he's had the shop for a long time so by the time he retires there's still going to be combustion cars out there but anybody that's younger that has a volkswagen shop they're maybe 25 years old you know in 10 years any shop i mean unless you're a dealership right that's true i i mean i guess you can still change out struts and stuff like that but at some point you can't work on this stuff anymore no i know it's so complicated and dangerous well it's very dangerous and that's why also ownership is going to go down right we're going to just lease them or rent them or so i i deleted this news article because it it was kind of boring but it actually there's been a a a change in perception of um darn it i wish i wouldn't have deleted that because i would have had the numbers but it shows that people that um are living a a a life without cars Mm -hmm. or they or they don't have one or they choose to take public transportation has been declining over the past year or so so living car free and car light in the United States. Brief update with 2017 data. I have it here. Yeah. Why don't you pull that up and see if you can just grab. There's a chart and you can just see the decline of the people living a car free life. Yeah, I see that. So it was actually at its peak in 2014, I guess. And then people wised up and said, well, this is a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's basically when you do that, you're basically yeah. virtue signaling and it makes your life hard. Some people like to do it. I know that Jess has a wedding photographer that she works with at her weddings. Oh, and this, her and this, this girl doesn't, she has a driver's license, but won't drive. She will not do it. So Jess has to go pick her up, take her around all this. To, it's like, it's That's such a ridiculous, you're, it's such a hassle and you're pushing it on other people. Yeah. You're taking the responsibility on yourself to be um, self, uh, what would it be? Self-reliant, right. To be able yeah. to get where you want to go. And you're putting that on everyone else to basically cart you around. Even if you are paying for it, you're still relying on other people. And I don't really like that. Single car families also has drastically dropped according to this, which is odd. Twenty thirteen yeah. was the peak for people having one car, and now I think maybe two car families are on the way up. Well, that's going to be great when they have two Teslas in their garage. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So <laughs> um, next article, uh, I kind of wanted to get into this a little bit because it is car related in terms of um, emissions and climate change and stuff like that, which always seems to kind of circle back to cars whenever you talk about climate change because right. you know cars and industry are the number one polluting thing, really, if you think about it. Um, except for, at least here, in India right. and China, I think it's, it's manufacturing. manufacturing. Um, so France was basically on fire. 
Um, <laughs> you may have noticed in the news a lot of pictures of cars flipped over, um, people in masks, running around, lighting cars on fire, lighting stores on fire, okay. blah, blah, blah. Why and was I, this happening? Okay, so basically um, protesters burned hundreds of cars, made many arrests. France looked like a war zone. Um, it's basically groups of masked men burned barricades, set fire to buildings, smashed fences, and torched luxury cars on some of the most expensive streets in the city as riot police fired tear gas and water cannons. Early in the evening, rioters spread around Paris in a game of cat and mouse with police. Luxury department stores on Boulevard Haussmann were evacuated as cars were set alight and windows smashed. Near the Louvre, metal grills were ripped down at the Tuileries Garden while fires were started. I wonder if you live in the ghetto in Paris if it still sounds pretty nice. Because <laughs> of the way that the words are. Yeah, sure. It like, sounds classy. <laughs> you live in Le Ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> On the Place Vendôme, a hub of luxury jewelry shops and designer stores, riders smashed windows and built barricades. And they actually, in the intersections, they were putting up like mock courts to like uh, <laughs> overturn Macron, who's the pr- president of uh of france okay okay so they're called the yellow vest protests and if you look at the pictures a lot of these people are wearing yellow vests and i'm like when i first saw that i was like wow these people are the most responsible protesters i've ever seen (laughs) they're wearing their safety vests (laughs) they're wearing safety vests i'm like oh this is gonna be look at that guy we're gonna shoot the tear gas right at that guy (laughs) i couldn't figure out why they were wearing yellow vests and what it is is since 2008 to have high visibility vests in their vehicles while driving is is required so oh, you really? have to have in your trunk, you have to have the yellow vest required. So that's kind of like their thing is they're like they're wearing the yellow vest, okay. you know, because it's required to have it in their car. So it's like maybe this little play like the government's making me do this, but I'm going to wear this yellow vest while I protest what the government is doing. Interesting. Um, so why are they protesting? Right. Um, so they had a 25 cent per gallon raising of the fuel tax. That's kind of the equivalent of you know, obviously everything there is liters, but 25% right. gallon fuel tax increase, which here would be 50 to 75 cents per gallon. Sure. Which is a, kind of a lot, especially if you don't have any money. Um, t- this was a, basically it's a carbon tax plan okay. uh, to help curb climate change. The government had proposed the taxes, which were slated to take effect in January and were designed to wean consumers off diesel and other polluting fuels to favor electric cars. Hmm. Now here's the problem is that poor people and disenfranchised people can't, afford right an electric car nor can they afford the 25 percent increase on gas and i look through and i'm kind of trying to figure out why um if there's anything else that was making these people protest and i think it's it's not just the gas tax they're really upset about other things they've got 10 percent unemployment over there two thousand dollar a month median income um so they're having a lot of different That's things come together income. Hmm. and when i look it's like um far right and far left groups are all protest protesting this I guess Ugh. there's a the the gap between the rich and the poor there is is vastly huge. wider even than it is here. Huh. Like it is it is pretty serious and there's poverty is becoming a problem in Legato. In Legato. <laughs> um so basically what happened was uh today mm-hmm. the government caved. They canceled the cat the tax. So which I don't know how I f- I don't like the tax, but I don't know about how I feel about the government caving to a bunch of people burning buildings and flipping cars over and setting them on fire and being like, okay, you're right. No problem. We're going to cancel that. So, but I don't know what else you do if they're just going to continue to raise havoc in the city. I mean, was there a vote? Was this democratic, this law? I honestly have no idea how how the legislation works over there. I don't know. So interesting. Anyway, that's, that's that. So I just wanted to let people know what was actually going on because you see a lot of articles are like, oh yeah, that thing's on Paris is on fire, but it's because they were adding 25% taxes on to start combating climate change and shift the political climate towards electric vehicles which again pushing too fast pushing too fast and 
they, everybody know all these entities know, and the manufacturers know, the governments know, it's never going to happen mm-hmm. unless they shove it down our throats. It's not. It just isn't going to happen on its own organically. It just is not going to happen. Agree yeah. or disagree? I I don't know. No, you don't know. You're not sure. I mean, I guess you could say Tesla is has all the tax incentives, right? And that's right. part of pushing it. Yeah. So in that way, yes. Okay. But there'd still be people that would buy these things, even if it wasn't not in the way they are now. True. You wouldn't have a gigafactory. True. True. Probably not. Um, so uh, anyway, that's what's going on with that. So okay. uh, also on the news, this isn't exactly news, but I thought this was interesting. So I I saw a patent on Jalopnik. So I and I and I I have on here it says Jake, Jake, check out this patent. Yeah. I want you to just look at it and tell I, me what I, you see. I did. It is a quote third row conveyor loading floor. It's basically <laughs> like your minivan has a conveyor belt in the back. You fold the so, seats down. Yes. Yeah. And the, like somehow there's a conveyor belt. So you yeah. just like sit stuff there and it'll slide it forward for All you. All the way to the to the front seat. That's so kind of cool yeah so this is for it's patent so i think i talked to jess i'm like what do you think of this she's like well actually it's awesome if it works in reverse because it's easy to get all the groceries up there sure but it's hard to get them back and i just was like i'm like come on this you is think the, it's ridiculous this is ridiculous yeah that there's a conveyor belt in your suv to move <laughs> your groceries within big. reach because it's too big it's too big <laughs> so for good on ford having a, basically what they do is they have the the seats fold down right yeah all the way flat and yep. then and then the, the same motor that runs the seats folding forward runs a conveyor belt to pull sure. and push all your your uh, your goods your for your little soccer nuggets back and forth. And your the, socket, no, soccer so- nuggets. <laughs> I just coined that phrase. I'm going to remember that. Soccer, soccer nuggets. nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> Get over here, you soccer nuggets. Yeah. So I like that. All right. Next on the docket is uh, <laughs> Uber can't win. No. Uber just can't win. There's always some. The, there's always some scam there's always or something, something going, going on. on. With Uber. So Uber Eats drivers are eating customers' food <laughs> thanks to loophole report can I, claims. Before you read the article, can I just read this quote I pulled out? This is from one of the drivers, okay. an Uber Eats driver. Yeah. Answer the door or it's in my belly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much that guy weighs. What do you think he drives? What do you think his Uber vehicle is? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Probably a... Like I'm thinking Dodge Caravan. Right, that's what came to mind for me too. Yeah, the guy drives a Dodge it doesn't Caravan. Doesn't fit, but and he yeah. wears like a like a windbreaker with the elastic cuffs on his sleeves. <laughs> okay, it, but he can't button it oh, because right, he's, he's right. He's got too much food in his belly. Yeah, the Buffalo Wild Wings isn't quite making it to your door. <laughs> <laughs> dude, dude comes to the next spot with the food and his face is covered in wing sauce. Hey, <laughs> here's your Taco John's. What's on your face? Ah, that's just the last guy's food. He didn't answer the door. Yeah. I was really hoping you wouldn't either because these Olays look delicious. So I don't know if you actually want to read it, but it's it's worse than if people just aren't answering the door. They're allowed to then eat the food yeah, if that's yeah. the case. Basically, but they're like just, oops, they're claiming that people didn't answer the door. They never try to go to the door. They never try to call them and just eat it and then say, well, you you never answered. Yeah, basically, that's basically what it is. So the guy says... <laughs> Answer the door or it's in my belly. This is on the Uber forum for Uber drivers. Okay. Others suggested ways to avoid getting caught. One advised limiting canceling orders to one in every 50 deliveries and selecting a legit reason for the list of reasons they give. Another said the Uber uh, driver could... Uh, another said that the Ubers could send Uber a fake nutritionist note that you're a vegan or a rabbi note saying that you only eat kosher if the company got suspicious. No, 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 no. I eat kosher. I would oh, never. So, so you, oh, you're proving basically I couldn't eat the food. I could not eat the food. <laughs> so basically you only, wow. eat, you only eat the pork chops. Right. 
when someone orders, oh, thank God, someone ordered pork chops from this restaurant. I'm totally going to eat those. This just goes back to, like, how much effort did someone put into this on the forums of a way to, like, find a loophole or get away with something? If like, they would just apply that exactly. effort to doing something legitimately. Uh, basically, overall, posters seem fairly disgruntled with Uber Eats. Multiple threads include complaints of low pay and increased time commitment compared to carrying passengers. However, the service will likely remain important for Uber as it looks to expand beyond its core ride-hailing business. So, yeah, that's that. <laughs> that's funny. We do actually use uh, DoorDash as their competitor. We and use DoorDash a lot. There's Grubhub, too. There's Grubhub as well. I've used DoorDash here. Uh, yeah. DoorDash is the one that brought me, like, 25 oh, pounds ketchup. of ketchup. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've used DoorDash quite a bit. All right. So what else do we have here? Is a hybrid Porsche 911 necessary? Um, so should I, let me read a little bit of this. Sure. Um, ever since the first rumblings of the recently revealed 992 generation Porsche 911 were heard, there's been much speculation over whether the storied sports car would become electrified in some way. The latest word from Porsche on the, on the matter? No. So, uh, let's blah, blah, blah. Hmm. From the company's point of view, it wouldn't be necessary for us to either with necessary for us either with the Taycan next year and with the next projects we are developing together with Audi. And we'll have so many electric cars that we will have fulfilled our CO2 requirements for the company easily. So if the polar ice caps say that they don't need it and the consumers aren't (laughs) crazy about it. (laughs) (laughs) So if the polar ice caps say they don't need it. Is that a quote? Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So, oh wait, no, that's not a quote. This is this this is the article saying. Exactly. Um, it doesn't make sense to offer a hybrid version which will stay in the showroom because there isn't demand. Yeah. Um, if you had asked me two years ago if I had imagined an electric 911, I would have answered, "Forget it, no chance." But in the meantime, we've had several test rides with the Taycan, and this is quite an enjoyable thing. That's such a German way to say it. It's quite, quite an enjoyable. enjoyable. So why not in the 911? Of course, not today. We will concentrate concentrate completely in the Taycan and the project with Audi. I don't know what the project with Audi is. I'm not sure what that is, but okay. So here's what's actually going to happen. They didn't say this, this but is this, your is, take on this it? is what's going to happen. So we have the 992. It just came out. Right. So next year, the Mission E, the Takan, comes out. Sure. Um, so that's after that mm-hmm. is when you will get a hybrid 911 because they can't just do a hybrid 911 now. Um, this is this stuff is like politics. Even though the base isn't the one winning at the polls for you, you still have to please the base. So if you release like a hybrid 911 or an electric 911 now mm-hmm. before you do the other stuff, it will get rejected. Okay. But if you do the the Tacan and those other cars, the Mission E Project cars, and they're successful and awesome, mm-hmm. okay, then people will almost be clamoring for it to be put in the 911. So you have to do this other stuff first, show the experiment works, and then it's going to be put into the 911 after these other projects are successful. Um, the problem is they need a transition or the base is just going to get upset. And Porsche, if they do it and Porsche loses its cool factor, mm-hmm. it's not going to be any good. Right. Um, well, they basically just said that they're not going to do a hybrid 911. They will. You're saying they're going to go back on that. Uh, I would say you don't believe all of the like millions of dollars of market research. I said hybrid slash electric. It's going to okay. be one of the two. So the mission E is the bridge to the hybrid slash electric 911. Take note, write it down. Okay. And call me in like four years <laughs> or whatever. I'm that skeptical. Happens. No, it's going to. Ha- you don't think there'll be an electric 911? No, I don't. There will be. <laughs> what do you mean? No. Porsche. Well, I just read you an article earlier that said all of our cars are going to be electric by this date. Volkswagen said that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. And Porsche owns Volkswagen. So this is Porsche owns a majority stake in Volkswagen. Right. I forget which way that went. Yeah. Because that was a big it deal. It went back and forth a couple of I know. So, yeah, it's going to happen. No, they just said they're not. They didn't say they're not. They said they don't have plans to. They didn't say no. They said we don't have plans to do it. Okay. So 
he even said, if you would have asked me a few years ago, I would have said no. Right. But with the success of the Tacon, we're starting to see that this is pretty fun. I mean, they tried it with the 918. The 918 was a high. You know what this is like? This is like my cat. Okay. I have, a, <laughs> I have an old cat. Okay. She's very old. But she she loves to sit on my lap, but she knows I don't always like it. I'm like, get off me, whatever. It's just, I'm, not, okay. you know, I'm trying to work. She will move as slow as possible so I don't notice her coming. <laughs> like, she'll, like, all of a sudden, she's just there because she moves so slowly and she's so stealthy and so crafty that you don't even know. It's like, moves her paws. Like, you, if you actually catch her doing it and watch her, she'll it's back. like she's moving like one frame per second. <laughs> It's incredible. That's exactly what Porsche is doing okay, here. Okay, so they're, they're being sneaky here. They're being sneaky. To... They have to because they have to get there. They have to get to that point. And the thing is, is that anything Porsche does is probably going to be spectacular. At this point, their track record is really, really good. You know, right. in the cars that they build, the technology that they've got. I'm not a big fan of an electric 911. It's not something that will ever appeal to me. I don't think it's ever something that will be cool. No one will ever be reminiscing about it. Right. No one's ever going to reminisce about um, even the 918, I think, is just like the 959 is antiquated, it's not great. Big I deal. agree. You know, and but the but the 918 is almost the same way, where it's cool in the way that it kicked off this um, hybrid electric thing for Porsche. A lot of the technology there, True. but in terms of actually being technologically sound compared to what's coming out, I wouldn't doubt if an electric 911 smears a 918 all over the place in five, Probably six, would. seven years, whenever it yeah. comes out. So. All right, so that's just my thought on that. Take note, there will be an electric 911 probably in five or six years, is my guess. Okay, noted. All right. Next story, Tesla on autopilot drove seven miles with a sleeping drunk driver, police say. The California Highway Patrol had some trouble pulling over a Tesla Model S after the driver was determined to be asleep behind the wheel while the vehicle operated on autopilot. So, this, I, <laughs> Well, he was determined. Do we know that he was actually determined? Yes. It was his deal. He wanted to be behind no, no, no. the wheel. He was found out, determined, found out to be oh, asleep okay. behind the wheel. Not okay. determined. Like, I'm determined to be <laughs> That's how I drunk heard and whatever. No, I. So, can you imagine, though, this cop trying to pull this car over? <laughs> That's the thing. Keep reading. So, it, it won't let me read. I've reached my free story limit. Oh, apparently. okay. Here, so, I'll, I'll let I'll... you take it from there. <laughs> okay. No problem. I'll read it. So, the, uh, at approximately 3.37 p.m., a California Highway Patrol officer driving down the highway on Highway 101 in Redwood City noticed a Model S traveling at 70 miles per hour, which is above the posted limit. When the mm. off- How is that possible? Right? Do, do they have GPS that, even on my ways, it says what the speed limit yeah, is. Yeah, the- I know. When the officer pulled alongside the car, he reportedly noticed that the driver appeared to be asleep while the car was in motion. After a few miles attempting to wake the driver with lights and sirens, another police cruiser joined the pursuit, and one of the police cars positioned the itself in front of the Tesla, which caused it to slow down sure. part of the normal autopilot operation. Yeah. All in all, it took about seven miles and seven minutes for the Tesla to come to a stop in the right-hand lane. It took officers a few more minutes to wake up the driver, who was taken to a oh shell station goodness. where he failed a sobriety test. Alexander Samick, chairman of the Los Altos Planning Commission, was arrested. Oh, he's a <laughs> he's a government guy. Was arrested under suspicion of driving under the influence and was taken to the San Mateo County Jail. This may sound like a first for any law enforcement agency, blah, blah, blah. Per- perhaps the most surprising aspect was that it took seven miles without the autopilot disengaging and that the car didn't crash into anyone. Needless to say, autopilot use is not a defense against DUI charges huh. and cannot be relied upon regardless of whether the driver is drunk or sober. Here's my question. Why oh. not? It, what's what, it, it's, I mean, I guess it's because you still have to be able to take control if something Because we're not at the level five right. technology yet. That's when things are going to get interesting. Do you still need to be the operator 
you know, do you need to still be a sober operator if it is level five autonomous and you never have to touch anything? I I don't know. I think the laws are going to have to take time to catch up to the tech. Uh, well, yeah, I, th- I think the tech has to be there first. Right. But even then, I mean, we're going to hear weird cases like this. Yeah, but I'd rather have the guy fall asleep drunk and have his car drive him home than drive. Yeah, for sure. Well, actually, it wouldn't drive him home. It would probably would it just keep driving? Would it just drive straight till the battery runs out and then stop? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, he wakes up. Where was this California? He wakes up over in <laughs> three states over. Like, well, he's oh. I don't know what that kind of mileage. I don't know that you're, you're only going a couple hundred miles. True. Um, so next article, last one, I think. Yep. Yeah, and then, then we, we have get a it. voicemail. We have a voicemail. A good one too. Um, the nine eighteen successor must break the Nurburgring record says Porsche. Okay. So Porsche's fascination with the Nürburgring shows no sign of abating. Speaking at topgear.com at the LA Motor Show, Porsche Motorsport boss Frank Stefan Walliser laid down the gauntlet for the core of whichever car supersedes the 918 Spider hypercar. It must achieve a 6 minute 37 6 minute 30 seconds at the Nürburgring. I don't care about the drivetrain. Six minute, 30 seconds is the target. <laughs> Sports cars are defined by their performance. Then we have to look at how to achieve it. An electric car in six minutes, 30 seconds is quite a challenge. So a hybrid may be unlikely. A fully electric hypercar, even more so. Really? Yeah. So that kind of confused me. I thought for sure he was going to be like, yeah, it's going to be full battery, blah, blah, blah. Right. No. He's saying no. For 5,000 years, mankind compares performance in games and competition in soccer, in rallying, throwing spears, and whatever. <laughs> I don't see it will stop, but <laughs> for sure we have to be careful and properly prepare. The main part of that preparation is safety. Nothing just happens. We need a very experienced driver and a good team taking care of every detail, and we have to be careful. I guess we will see what happens in the spring. We'll do some serious Nurburgring testing. The GT2 RS Manthe was just an end of a session run to bring the trophy home. <laughs> so here's my question. Uh-huh. Do we care anymore? How many times are we going to break this record before right. people stop caring? I so, don't think people care Remember right when now. we went to the moon and it was like, holy, wow, we went to the moon. There's men on the moon. Right. And by like Apollo, whatever, people are like, oh, we're on the moon. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we're on the moon. There it is. It's right there. I can see it. That guy was there. Don't care. It right. wasn't interesting anymore. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. I agree. At some point, breaking the Nurburgring record is going to be like. Who cares? cares? It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And it's going to be Star Trek where you're just like, and you disappear and you appear at the finish line. <laughs> I mean, that's the end game, right? They, we teleported the whole way in one second. Yep. We're, the whole thing is to do it as fast as possible. Pretty soon we'll just be electrons going around the course as, as fast as, as humanly possible. Um, but um, is this where the marketing stuff is now? Do you think? Yes. Because it used to be like, we won at, and the, we want Formula One. We want right. Le Mans. We did this. No, they're not in Le Mans. They don't do Formula One. Right. It's they, not. The 919 hybrid went around and was smacking the hell out of all the tracks and all the records and everything else. You know, they were doing all that stuff. That's their marketing now. Right. This Nurburgring thing, that's the marketing. I it's, guess so. It sucks. Yeah. Well, it, it doesn't suck. It's just not what I want. I want both. I want them to be doing everything. But there must be something where it's just they don't seem... They don't see the relevance in the motorsport stuff I think anymore. it was the return on investment, honestly. Because operating Come a factory on. team is so expensive. They have, dude, they have more money than you could ever. Yeah, but, it if you, but if it's not a return, if it doesn't make money to spend that money, then they just won't do it. That's, that's what not, it comes down to. That's not the way it used to be, though. It no, used I know. to be like, we're men. We're going to take this pink pig that we designed that looks different than it's all the other pink pigs. It's also because it was a lot cheaper to do that back in the day. In context, was it? I would, I would hundred percent. We should look so. that up and and make sure that's correct. But um, it still costs a lot of money. And Porsche was not a huge company in the seventies. No, 70s. I know. But think of the return they got on that. People didn't know Porsche as a household name 
until you know they were dominating on the racetracks. Well, yeah, they won the twenty four hours of Daytona with uh, with the the Garrard car. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's so maybe- that's where the return on investment came in back in the day. <laughs> And I just don't think there. Who who watches racing and wouldn't know of Porsche? And well, that's the point. Be convinced. The point that. is that society isn't necessarily watching racing anymore, right? Because motoring is becoming less and less cool. I'd say in relevant. general, less, yeah. It's just nobody. It's like would, would the same people that are saying, "Yeah, I don't want to watch racing." Are they? Would they also go, "Yeah, I don't want to watch my dishwasher do dishes"? I mean, is it the same thing for them? <laughs> like where it's just <laughs> it's just like these appliances that are just operating. They just don't care. It's just it's completely irrelevant to them. Yes, I never hard. thought of that. Yeah, so it's like a dishwasher competition they'd yeah. be watching. For, is that the difference for them? They don't see, like, they don't care about the human element anymore. There's just right. no... There's, and there just, really isn't as much, I would say. Right. All right, well, we'll be right back. We're going to get to a voicemail in just a second, then we'll cap things off. All right, we've got one voicemail. Who's it? Who's it from? This is from Larry Velez, and uh, he's very well-spoken. He sent this to us. We always appreciate feedback here. And I'm just going to get right into it because he kind of describes what he's talking about here. Right. And, and feedback. You know, it's, it's a, it was about 10 minutes long. We cut it down a yep. little bit because it was just too long for us to air. But um, I almost thought about we should just, at one point, I was like, we should just have him on because he's just very well spoken and, and could do it very well at interviewing about this topic right um and it's he's basically he said he's 40 something episodes or you can just play it but he says he's 40 episodes in and so he has he's not seen the evolution of what i think of tesla over he's only halfway to where we are now right you know in my opinion not- so yeah to preface it he is commenting on chris's despisal disp- despisal is that a word i don't know i don't I'm going so. for it chris's uh, uh detest detest of Tesla. So here, I'm just going to play it. All right. Hey, Jake and Chris. Wanted to send you over, I guess, a voicemail, but I thought I'd send it for my audio recorder. Quality might be a little bit better. It is. Um, <laughs> my message is really about Tesla, and I've been listening to the podcast, and you guys are doing a great job. I'm up to only episode 40, so I'm I'm behind, but I'm assuming the Tesla ranting <laughs> will continue throughout the rest of the episodes as I catch up. It's not wrong. <laughs> but I really wanted to send some feedback, that, and I think it's important point that you guys are missing about Tesla. And I think today's a good day. It's December 5th. Markets are closed, but Tesla just announced that they're going to begin taking orders in Europe. Which, I'm pausing here because I guess I never even realized Tesla's only in the American market right right now. Yeah, right. Well, I don't know. How are they going to be able to deliver cars to Europe if they can barely deliver them here? I know they did just reach like a landmark of like a thousand cars a month or whatever they're supposed to be doing. They're they're getting there. They're getting there, but why open up another market if you just barely have been able to crawl yourself up out of the... I guess, got to keep growing. And I think tomorrow you'll see the stock go up because demand is high and and in any case, I won't get into that. But I think the main point about Tesla that you guys are missing is that they're really competing at a business level they're out competing at a business level and and it's really not about the product i mean the product is part of it but really it's about the business of it and how they're going going to market and what they're doing so that was his first part here and i I cut out some afterwards so i'll just comment on that do you agree that the cars i mean 
So he's arguing that... I've always said that Tesla is not a car. It's a concept. It's an idea. People are buying the idea of Tesla. Nobody... I've never been... Well, there's people that like the cars. Right. But they're not buying them because they're a wonderful car. They're buying them because it's this new technology. They want to be part of something. They want to be part of the movement, part of the idea, part... They want to participate in the change that they want to see in the automotive industry and in the climate change industry. That's why they're participating in this. They're buying the idea and... they're buying the, the right to participate in that culture, basically, is what they're doing. Sure. When they're driving one, anybody driving around on one is like, I'm sure there's some nerds out there, but I'm sure there's a lot of people, <laughs> as I'm making driving motions right now, nobody can see me. People miss a lot of your uh, enthusiasm. <laughs> we got we to start, <laughs> start doing our live cast. Like yes, we, but anyways, no, I, so I agree with Larry here that, you know, it, in a less esoteric sense than that, it's more about, you know, Tesla company as an innovator, and that's where a lot of their value lies, not necessarily in the product itself. So fast forwarding here, Larry continues. Everything in the essence of your business resists you changing to the new product. Um, and, and one great example, and I know I'm, I'm over five minutes here, so I apologize, but I'll try to wrap it up. In the book, he, he touches on earth moving equipment. Book earlier so that I cut out. basically, excavation equipment. And he talked about the way it was always chain driven machines. The biggest skyscrapers, whenever you see construction from the 20s, 30s, 40s, it's chain driven machines that are doing all the work. And at some point, these small companies came up with hydraulics, but the hydraulics were weak. And the chain driven companies ignored it. They said, this is garbage. We can't do any, we can't build a skyscraper with this. So they ignored that technology. So what did those hydraulic companies do? They started making slightly bigger machines, slightly better machines, and then selling it to small construction companies or people to use in their farms and so on and so forth. And they moved up market. Meanwhile, the chain driven machines were like, well, we don't want that market. That's a crappy market. So we're just going to keep focusing on skyscrapers. So basically what he's saying is that the chain-driven companies are GM mm-hmm. and, exactly. and the hydraulic company is Tesla. But the thing is, is that GM and Volkswagen, Ford, they're not just saying, fuck it, we're going to continue buying chain dr- or building chain-driven cranes. Right. They're investing everything they have, cutting exactly. their workforces, closing down factories. And, you know, to be fair, he hasn't listened to the rest of the episodes up till now, so he doesn't know that we've talked about this. But, you know, Volkswagen is, like we just talked about today, billions and billions of dollars, and in a few right. years, this is all there's going to be. So they're not making the same mistake that this chain-driven company. No, I liked the analogy, though. The other comment I had about this analogy is he's talking about these uh, small manufacturers who are making the hydraulic stuff, the innovators in the industry. Is Tesla, they're certainly an innovator, but are they the underdog still? Can we still call them, like, the the little underdog that's not trying to sell into a big market? Probably. Just in terms of volume, probably. I suppose. Yeah. So I'll continue here. Well, what happens is you eventually run out of oxygen. You go up market, go up market, go up market, go up market until you run out, which is what happened to Porsche. You know, basically Porsche, when they were selling one product, the 911, as you know all too well, they ran out of oxygen and they needed the Boxster to survive. They needed to go to Toyota. Was there a pun in there about being air-cooled oxygen? (laughs) (laughs) They needed no oxygen. Yeah, and so he's referring to back in the early 90s, uh, when they came out with the boxer and basically uh, saved Porsche, uh, and, exactly, uh, and say, "Please teach us how to build a reasonable car." And to, to uh, I think Mitsubishi or, or to you know, please teach us how to build a reasonable engine. And then they were able to survive because they made that 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 change because they, they were running out of oxygen. You can't just have the 911 and survive as a company. 
So um, it's it's a it's a pretty long studied business theory, and and you can read into it, but it's it's happening right now. This is exactly what Tesla is doing. They're competing on a whole different metric, and and they're not selling a car for horsepower anymore or performance. They're selling it for convenience. You know, people who it's totally hate going to the gas though. station, and all sorts of other metrics. So basically, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's competing at a different dimension, and that's why it's it's. Um, it's, well, it's if you look at the screen when it's on turbo mode, it and, takes you and to a they're competing dimension. and having better factories, right? The product is not the car. The product is the Gigafactory, and that's another piece that people are missing. So in any case, just want to send those thoughts to your way. And um, I wanted to start off with this, but I forgot um, to give you some credentials because I know you, you've got opinions on people and their cars. So <laughs> I, I, I am a classic German car guy. I own an E30 M3, a B5 S4, and a 1991 Volkswagen GTI 16 valve. Good selection. You know, those are my yeah. those are my classic cars. Diverse. Um, but I still think that those days are over, and I'm going to really just have classic cars and a daily electric. There's really no need to have a 2010 compromise between those worlds. You know, I think those those cars. Hold on a second. So maybe for him, he feels that way. Okay. But what about people that don't feel that way? What about people that are like, well, no, I don't want to drive an electric car. I don't want to. It's not up to him to say what other people need or want. I don't think he's trying to. I think he's just making a point. And I don't. Well, I think that he is. <laughs> he's basically saying there's no need for people. No, I it, think he's saying like the classic cars will always have their value, but people won't lust after cars from like this generation right and so in the future yeah we're all gonna maybe have our classic cars that are really cool but then as a daily driver you'll have your electric or whatever the appliance car is per se because i don't need to have a combustion engine car mm, i see what you mean yeah thanks for telling me what i need i don't <laughs> like that very much and go ahead larry he wants to fight you i'm not going to no one's going to write films like your German buddies did about those cars that were released after 2000. They're just going to be forgotten. And people are going to go back to the classics and, and the basic no cars, you know, the classic legendary cars, and drive dailies electric. And Larry, that's, is that's a the B5 way S4 classic, be. though, at The market point? will, I would think will so. show this pan out, yeah. where demand will not stop for Tesla cars, and the mainstream companies will be forced to change. And I think only the bravest... Um, will be able to make the transformation. Maybe Volkswagen. I think I've got confidence they are hurting enough from Dieselgate to make the change. As but I actually about, think right? you yes, can they, also they, ignore it. No um, so I think Dodge, by ignoring electric, might survive as a rebel company. Just like Philip Morris, uh, Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds were, were tobacco companies. And when the government came after them, one of them went into aluminum foil, R.J. Reynolds, and the other one doubled down on Vice, and they started buying liquor companies, and they said, screw this, we are the Vice company. And they did better because they ignored the, the public sentiment. So I think Dodge can, can you know, drive Hellcats to the bank to be fair, and, like and a really be the anti-company. But when you try to be mm. both worlds, it's a lot harder. Smoking Keep and alcohol work, is very and, expensive. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to enjoy your podcast. All right, thanks. Bye. Appreciate that phone call. That was really, really nice. Yeah. I like I liked the, the sound quality. It was nice. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. So, so yeah, you, you move into alcohol and, and cigarettes, but they're hideously expensive. I mean, there's a large amount of tax on cigarettes, especially. Okay. So, basically, so are you drawing the analogy then that your your gas sure, you can is buy still it, available, but you're not going to be able to afford to drive it. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna feel bad. There's gonna be people out there. You know, right now you see someone that smokes, and you're like, man, that guy is wasting so much money. 
hundreds of dollars a month on right. smoking. How stupid. That's exactly what people are going to say. There's a difference, though. No. The connoisseur of your car, he's going to be the guy smoking the expensive cigar, right? It's a okay. different perception. You're not saying, like, oh, he's a loser that's, like, sucking on his cancer stick, wasting his money and his you life. Can get, well, uh, yes, a cigar you can, is, but a cigar is, like, and like sipping cognac that has a totally different image than someone being, like, trashy smoking cigarettes, right? I, I guess, yeah. So I'm just saying that's probably how it'll be looked upon having your classic car. You and know. I still would say that smoking, unless you're smoking Swisher Sweets, the cigars can be quite expensive. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it can be... Oh, yeah, I know. I, I understand you're, it will be expensive. So dri- driving your classic car, will be, there will be people that will be priced out of being able to do it. Yeah, no, I think you're no right. question about it. All right. Anyway, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> on that gloomy note. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> on that note, if Chris is right, let's. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen my microphone stand, Chris? I, I barely can. It looks like it's about to collapse <laughs> with all this festive festiveness. All right. On that note, guys, we're gonna let you go. Um, make sure you head over to Patreon.com/slash/overcrest. Sign up. Support the people that you like the creators that you enjoy support them in whatever arena and this one happens to be us we'd really really appreciate it leave us a five-star review on itunes and uh, we will see you guys next week thank you